How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. It's reunion time today here at the Plastic Podcasts. I've known my guest, Adrian Lunny, one way or the other for over 20 years, since he and I both attended a screenwriting MA course in London at the fag end of last century. Already a business journalist at the time, he went on to edit such fearsome titles as MedTech Innovation and the rather appropriately named Plastics and Rubber Weekly, and is now a PR guru with his own agency. He's also a member of the diaspora whose story is both unique to him and typical of his time. Born in London to parents from Fermanagh, educated at public school, but conflicted by his own Republican leanings, it's a tale of having one foot in both countries, but a home in neither. It's best if we let him tell it, with a few moments of adult language included. But first we discuss his love of Irish music and playing the fiddle. Or is it the violin? I started with music about six or seven years old, I would say. Um, And... uh, after a period, I became aware there was such a thing as Irish music, and it was different from um, other music. Um, we lived in the London borough of Brent, um, and um, so uh, uh, there were little music competitions all over the place in Wembley, Brent Town Hall. Um, so you'd play your Tuttonsworth piano with 40 other kids, and you might get a medal or two. Actually, I did get some medals now, I recall it. I got a, you know, silver and a gold, and that was all part of the fun in the 60s, wasn't it? Kiddie competitions. So that led me further into the musical matrix. And um, uh, I suppose I became aware of um, folk music, Irish music. um, Well, let's face it, at that time, because um, as a North Londoner, occasionally my parents would... um, leave us at home at night and head out to uh, the Galtimore or the National, which were the two main um, dance halls in, in London, in northwest London anyway. Um, and so they, they'd have all those tunes um, together. Um, and um, after the piano, I picked up the violin, which is a, is a, is a horrible instrument if you're not prepared for it um, in its raw state. Um, uh, but uh, I slogged away and eventually when we had to move south of the river with much wailing and gnashing of teeth, um, I won a music scholarship to uh, the minor public school that I went to in Croydon, Surrey. Um, and that necessitated keeping going with the music. So I've kind of I've kind of been shackled to music all my life, really, Doug. And um, and Irish music has been a, a very interesting um, tributary I would say to the to the main flow of all of that so um yeah that's uh that's that's the, those are the musical beginnings um and uh what what else? I mean I could I could talk a bit more about the uh, the physical background to that because uh, if you want me to well no please go ahead uh, so I was born in a hospital um, called Park Royal, which is off, I, I, Londoners might not get this, but it's off um, Hanger Lane, the Hanger Lane gyro, Gyratory Junction or whatever it is now. It's in northwest London. It's sort of, I guess, Ealing is the nearest sprawling suburb. And my parents, uh, when they came over from Fermanagh in the 50s, set up shop in Harlesden, um, above a shop. We weren't there for very long, um, a few months, I think, before we moved to 
near the tube station called Preston Road. So Preston Road is itself a suburb of Wembley, Wembley Park, Wembley Manor, all that kind of stuff. And I'm of an age, so I was six years old when the World Cup happened, uh, 1966, and I was able to see that, uh, well, I was able to see the, um, the carnival processing, as it were, out of our, um, out of our front window in Preston Road with um, everybody coming and going. Um, so I'm a child of the 60s, I guess, in some ways. And in that particular neighborhood, I guess it, it was a time of building. It was a, let's not say build back better, but it was building back after the war, I would say. And the lot it was a time of concrete, really, I think. And, and the 50s and the 60s were the time of, of the Irish really in Britain, I would say. And I went to three schools around there and one of them was located in Hendon where the M1 was being built. And I think a signature memory for me as a kid, as a, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old was um, leading a party of my classmates and my teacher down to the junction of the motorway in the M1 where a neighbor, um, uh, a guy called Dan Cregan was a foreman on one of the gangs working the M1. And um, so my journalism was already in hand then, you'll be pleased to know, because I, at six or seven, I, I wandered onto the building site and explained to Dan that I, we'd come to do some research about um, uh, the construction industry and all the rest of it. And he was very happy to let, to, to let, um, to let the kids wander around and talk about all that. And, and um, I think, uh, again, in London and, and in the construction boom of the 60s, uh, another signature memory for me would be the sound of the Atlas Copco compressor and of the road drills and of the jumping jennies and all of those gangs working around town at that time, up and down the country and in the motorways. And I guess 99% of them were Irish laborers. Uh, and indeed, that was my dad's profession, my, my uncle's profession. My dad was white collar, my uncle was blue collar up in Liverpool. Um, one of my uncles anyway. And um, so I think that, that was kind of the music of my first 10 years, really. That, that, that's that constant building. Um, indeed, uh, when, I, when I worked on the buildings myself, that's what it was called. You worked on the buildings, uh, no other word for it. Uh, so um, I don't know, does that cover infancy in, in five seconds? Let's move ourselves even further back, if we will. And uh, you say that your parents came across from Fermanagh. Um, how did they meet? They met at a dance. Uh, so my my mother is born in 28. My father is born in 26. They met at a local dance or, or hop or whatever. Um, and she was 17 and he was 19. And um, the word about him, according to her father, was that he was Benny, was his name. Uh, Benny was the nicest fellow you could meet in a day's walk. Okay. So he was the village postman, this guy saying it, and he did walk 14 miles a day. So uh, to delivering his post, and that's my mother's father. So, so maybe that was a compliment. I, I, keep, I keep thinking about it. It's, it's, maybe there's a hidden barb in there somewhere, but I don't, I, anyway, in the country, in Fermanagh country, that was, that was the thing. Uh, so they met then 
actually both my parents went to to boarding school they were my mother was the eldest of six and my dad was number five in a tribe of eight and I think they were the only members of um, their siblings to go away to school my, my mother went to a, a convent called Mount Leward in Enniskillen and my dad went uh, over the border to St Pat's or St Patrick's College in Cavan uh so i guess yeah there were fees to pay but these kids my mother and father were considered i guess to either be the lucky ones or uh to be the brightest of the bunch so my mother uh studied hard and, and became a teacher teacher training school she went to my dad went even further south the legend is he went to ucd i never found the papers but he, he says he went to ucd university college dublin and um, got his engineering something or other degree and he ended up working in the uk for the was it called the department of works i'm not sure uh, but he worked for the civil service in an engineering capacity roads bridges dams and in the 60s, one of his uh, key jobs was working in the naval dockyards in Chatham because either they need to be built, I think actually they needed to be decommissioned, these, these dockyards in Chatham. So we had quite a long commute out there uh, from, from Wembley to Chatham every day. Uh, but that's, that, that's what he did and that's how they got. And every, every summer, as if it was just the uh, compass resetting itself, we went back to Ireland for our holidays. So, uh, and since my mother was a teacher, we had we had, we were able to have some long, long old times back at, back on the homestead. Um, uh, and if my dad had to go back a bit early, so be it. But we did that in our Morris Traveller, the, the the white ones with the wooden bits around them. Um, that that kind of thing um, until it broke down um, uh, or else one one or two times we flew into Belfast at midnight I think the flights were cheap then or something and my my mother's brother had a job at the airport in baggage baggage handling so he was able to kind of show us the way you know um, so um, so yeah that was that was that was the 60s for us um, but um, yeah, but we're still in the 50s, maybe. I'm not sure. Anyway. Did they move across to England for economic reasons? Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, uh, they felt, rightly so, I guess, that um, their prospects were limited in Ireland, especially perhaps in the north of Ireland, where uh, there was, what, what, what can we say, Doug? There was, there was competition for jobs, some of it um, in an unfair manner. Um, and they felt that um, post-war UK had many more openings. Um, so, um, uh, particularly for my mother, I think. Uh, no, no, for both of them really. There was there was there was opportunity in the England, and there was more equal opportunity. Let's say. But they're both highly educated individuals in Northern Ireland, and you're saying that there was a sense that that the uh, the employment system was perhaps stacked against them. Was this a sectarian thing, do you think? Yeah, I guess so. It's pretty casual, I would say, back then. I, I guess, I mean, Northern Ireland hadn't been going that long, I don't think, since the 20s. And um, so it was a kind of infant state as well. Uh, and 
yeah, I think I think the try the try, it's not it's not the case now, but and, and less so now. But um, the the tribes were fairly well distanced from each other, and um, the apparatus of uh, the Northern Ireland state was uh, almost completely with the majority community, um, and and you know better better sociolog sociologists than I have got a a handle on exactly how this was so, you know, since 1920 to the present time. So, um, but apart from that, I mean, I think the mood music there for my mother and my father was was to leave town, really. I think um, just on a personal note, I think my mother was more excited about a cosmopolitan metropolitan future than a life in the country. Uh, and and in a sense she led the charge i would say uh my father a little bit less so he was maybe a little a little happier with um, uh his surroundings and, and 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 all of that but i think my mother wanted a you know wanted the bright lights in the big city as well as everything else so so she was very happy to be to be uh, making it in london and um sending uh, parcels and money back from time to time and um, and calling over her siblings to go to university or to get jobs in uh, as car mechanics or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, she led the way, I would say. I was going to ask, was there an exodus from both the families and not just them? Uh, well, I would say that uh, England was, was a was an opportunity for everybody to dip into and dip out of according to their wants, needs and circumstances. So I think, let's see now. So my mother's one is, I think nearly all of her siblings would have spent some time in England working and one still remains. So what's that? That's, yeah. And of my father, uh one brother settled in liverpool he settled in the london area but uh the other six stayed in ireland um so my in that sense my father's family was perhaps a little bit more conservative you might say in its outlook yeah you're listening to the plastic podcasts we all come from somewhere else the 1960s London of Adrian's youth was a different world to the one we know today. Just how different? Apart from having to wear earmuffs every day. Um, <laughs> um, what I, I remember, what I do remember, Doug, was a, was a feeling of there were new, newly minted immigrant communities um, uh, all around. So the roll call at my school I think would the majority of the names they called out would be, okay. So there'd be O'Connor, there'd be Byrne, there'd be Lunny, there'd be Murphy, there'd be you know Riley and so on. But there'd also be uh, Kuklinski, uh, Kabaleski. Um, uh, so there'd be Irish, Polish, and then there'd be uh, Musto, Lavarini. There'd be Italian. So Irish, Polish, Italian. Uh, all kind of like I say, all a bit new, all a bit, all a bit freshly minted. I, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, my, um, 
my parent, my mother, in the spirit of optimism, <laughs> uh, would reason that um, the London public transport could take care adequately of a five, six, seven-year-old. So for a time more in hope than anything else, she put me on the buses thinking that I would know how to change at Alperton and, and all the rest of it. So, um, uh, and indeed there were thousands, it's, you don't see it now, do you? There were like thousands of kids um, in their white shirts swarming the buses, you know, all very young age, all with the old money, you know, the big, big pennies and all of that, trying to get from A to B. Um, but that, I think as, as we got older and cynical and a little, little less innocent towards the end of the 60s, um, we, we, we organised lifts and what we have today. And uh, one, one of the people of, of one of the characters of that era, Henry Cooper, the boxer, um, lived around the corner for us in a in a um, in another part of Wembley. He had a twin brother who had a grocer shop that um, uh, was open every um, every every weekend. Uh, and Henry's um, wife Albina, I think that's her name. I think she was Italian. Okay, and Henry Marco and I went to the same school, so I get a lift off of her. Um, and um, <laughs> and she used to say to Henry Marco. Uh, here, Henry, why can't you talk proper like Adrian? Um, which was nice of her to say, you know, because my English accent was coming on wonderfully at that time, Doug, and it uh, was quite different from my parents, you know. So, um, and that's a part of the, I think that's a part of the plastic experience, if you like, that's, uh, well, what is it? Is it? It's a little strange in a way, you know, because during those 60s, uh, of course, little Lord Fauntleroy would be going back to Fermanagh and talking in a kind of quite precise and posh way, you know, as an English, as an English boy, among uh, complete among strangers in a way, you know, among very very different accents and attitudes and all the rest of it. So that, I think that, I think that was mainly amusing for everybody, perhaps not so amusing for me. But um, was it your mum or your dad who insisted on you speaking properly? It, it never it, it wasn't uh it wasn't a directive it wasn't able I, well my mother was a teacher you know so she would have recognized sloppy diction when she saw it you know or heard it um but nobody no nobody nobody made me talk i mean i could have talked like that you know but i didn't um uh so um it was just the way it happened i think you know it was just it was just it, it just happened um and of course I think I think the I think um, so. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Brother's three years old. Sister's five years old. So, uh, and I think we recognise that after three weeks in uh, in Fermanagh, my parents my parents' accent changed. It went back to it deepened and it went back to what it was before, really, and including expressions. I can't think of one now. You know that wouldn't have made any sense in in Wembley you know in London but their voices changed the longer they were back in their in their home and they and another weirdness I suppose is that they used to refer to Fermanagh as home you know it's like all right well we're going home now well, okay, so so where do we live <laughs> where do we live in Wembley is that home well not particularly, you know, we, you know, home is where home home was. So um, that was another kind of linguistic conundrum, if you like. So um, 
so going on to school because you mentioned that um when did you go to um this uh, public school in Croydon well that, that was uh so my father's job moved him and he was either going to move to Newcastle or he was going to move to Croydon to um to one of those concrete uh, skyscrapers there uh, uh, the property services agency that's who he worked for um and they had their own building in Croydon as did the home office in Luna House um anyway they called the shots for Croydon so off to Croydon we had to go um so it was a case of um sitting exams actually Doug for slightly posher schools than the general norm um uh, and so that I did I think I think I sat maybe three or four exams uh, a couple in Wimbledon a couple in Croydon and basically like a lot of things I just took the best offer or we took the best offer which was a music scholarship to the Archbishop School of John Whitgift in Croydon which was a very old school actually um I, some people have heard of the Whitgift Centre in Croydon some people I say um, but it's the it was the big uh, uh, mall experience of its day. You know, it was up and running by the time we arrived there in 1970, and um, it was the the freehold of that site was owned by the school I went to. So, um, and the school also owned another school called Trinity, and a girls' school. So the school was a wealthy, wealthy foundation. And um, it was actually sited in the middle of Croydon until the 20s. D.H. Lawrence taught, taught there for a couple of years. Um, but other than that, it, 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 it wasn't really, um, it's not a major public school, I think. It's a minor public school in, in, in the lingua. Um, but nonetheless, it was very, very solid. It had a lot of pupils. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been back for decades. Um, but at the time, when you compare it to the roll call of um, Irish, Polish, Italian, the, the names of the roll call were solidly English and it had, um, it had two feeder preparatory schools. Uh, so in other words, um, parents could pay to send their son to a prep school for four years in order that they might qualify for the desirable grammar school of John Wakegift. Um, so all, all this, all this I discovered in my <laughs> first term in for, short trousers. And um, after a after a while, I, I I also began to discover that um, aside from the names and the culture and everything, um, the in a school of maybe 1,100 boys, I think there were three um, people, uh, boys from my religious background. Um, now, <laughs> one or two of which happened to be head boy eventually, which is a bit weird. But um, but yeah, so from 19, so in 1970, uh, a difficult year really, because I, I would say that the civil rights march in actually I don't know I think it was coincident with the Paris uprising in 68 perhaps I don't know Doug so 1970 was it was just getting started really let's say 
so so everything was kind of colliding into each other my parents were having to buy school uniform and things like that despite the scholarship and and um you know there were quite a lot of the time anxious phone calls back home how are you doing you know did you hear about this did you hear about that so on and so forth um and so yeah it was uh, it was a new decade and quite an anxious opening to it i would have said just to kind of summarise here, there you are. You've been you've been you've been raised in England um, um, and specifically in London uh, all, all your life, but you're very much aware of your your Irish roots and your and your Catholic um, roots. Um, you're coming from you, you, you've got a family that come from Northern Ireland, where the accent side comes and goes depending upon whether or not you're, you, you you've been back home um, for, for for some time. And there you are in what is essentially an English establishment. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, presu- I'm presuming there's a dichotomy here. <laughs> well, you just play it as it lays, don't you? I mean, um, I wh- whatever whatever happened uh, at the weekend and whatever um, traditions I was compelled to take part in uh, on a Sunday or, or or anything, you still play your school as a kid, don't you? You try to at least, you know, you still make friends, break friends. You, uh, with quaking, you know, legs, you get involved in this game called rugby, um, uh, or you you realise that within three or four years you're going to be enlist- enlisted into the um, into the cadet force that the school had. Um, you just try and do what you've got to do and survive, you know. Um, and while realising that perhaps you need to up your manners even more um, in terms of I mean, I, I, I'm a slob to this day anyway, but, um, and I'm sure my parents did their best with me, but um, things like um, eating in the street or covering your mouth where, when you yawn, you know, this was all a little bit new to me <laughs> for my sins, you know, no doubt it's just me, dog, you know, but um, I'd been slumming it in, you know, County Kilburn, maybe a bit too long, I don't know, but anyway, Croydon was different. Mm. We'll be back with Adrian Lunny in a moment. But first, a matter for your attention. Have you subscribed to the Plastic Podcasts? I know, I know, it's probably slipped your mind, but it is a simple thing to do. Just go to our homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com and insert your email address in the space provided. One confirmatory click later, and each fresh podcast will wing its way across the ether straight to you. It's both easy and peasy, and indeed, lemony squeezy. And now, the plastic pedestal, which is where I ask one of my interviewees to name a member of the diaspora of personal, cultural or political significance to them. This week, not one, but two guests, as Mo O'Connell and Mary Tynan nominate not just a pair, but a plethora, a parade indeed, of plastic pedestals in partnership. First of all, it's Mary. Bob Geldof has always been somebody who's come to my mind because uh, um, I really admire what he did with... Um, uh, Band-Aid and Live-Aid and Live-8, which I was actually at, but um, that kind of got very overshadowed because the um, 11-11 bombings in London came shortly after that, so people kind of forget about about that, but it was um, that was a wonderful event. And he just, and the way he, I've read his autobiography, the way he went over to Africa and he just like, he, um, one of the dictators there, he basically said to him, you are a C word. 
he said that to his face. I was like, and you could just imagine, like this was a man who had people killed like at the drop of a hat and Bob Gelder walks in and says that to him. And I just thought, you know, he really was, yeah, Bob the Gob as they called him, but you know, he put his money where his mouth is and he did, you know, if he, he did what he said he did. And it, like the way he spoke to Margaret Thatcher when they were like, everybody else was doing everything on that record for free and she still insisted on taking um, BAT on it and you know, it, he just he just wouldn't take. You know, he just wouldn't take it. So yeah, he would be the first person that would come to my mind in terms of the Irish diaspora. Um, somebody who uh, started off in, in and he started off as a musician. And they were a good band as well. So yeah, that's mine. Tons of people. What well, George Bernard Shaw? You read any of his essays? He's he's a, he's a, he's an amazing man. Just to even read about. Um. Then there's, oh God, there's like, I can, Jessie Buckley is amazing. You know, she's a stunning actress. Um, just even just to watch her performances like in War and Peace, that's like just a, she outplays everyone. She outplays Jim Broadbent. How can you outplay Jim Broadbent? But she did, you know, um, gosh, there's so many. Who else is there? Can't think now because, because there's so many. <laughs> um, Sinead O'Connor uh, ripping the, the picture of the Pope, you know, um live on tv um causing an uproar but then transpires she's absolutely right to do it you know um gosh uh who else i mean like like even bono is inspiring you know um then there's uh who else was i thinking of there's loads of people uh sharon horgan uh so she wrote pulley and she's written you know catastrophe um people rarely go on that she's irish which is interesting she's from black rock well gelder's from black rock so that's where you know where i'm from it's uh she's she's a phenomenal writer um there's uh i mean there's edna o'brien as well there's evan boland um who passed recently uh who wrote some of the most beautiful famine poems ever um there's wb yates jackie yates you know lady gregory countess markovich well we'll claim her anyway um, Maud Gone, we claim as well. Uh, I mean, just like, you know, <laughs> you can keep going. <laughs> Mo O'Connell there. And if you want to hear more of our interview with Mo and Mary, then make your way to www.plasticpodcasts.com and click onto the episodes page. There you'll find our entire archive of interviews, which are also available on Amazon, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now back to Adrian Lunny. And we talk about how, as the 60s rolled into the 70s, his sense of family and country changed with those years. As the troubles wore on, and there was sufficient aggravation, I think, and disturbance in the fact of um, the increasing violence in the province um, and the increasing effect it had on everybody, who uh, didn't have a main role in that violence. Um, and as a kind of growing teenager, I think um, you kind of absorb that wherever, wherever one is. And I happen to be in, um, in Purley, Croydon, Surrey, you know, in a very distinct um, un-immigrant community. Uh, so, I'll just I'll just pick off a couple of milestones maybe. Um, 
when internment began, it's a wonderful recruiting ground for the uh, provisional IRA, um, since it was so uh, mistaken in its application. And uh, there was a book uh, produced called Brutalities. And this was authored by a character called Father Dennis Fall, who I think has, he's quite well known in the history of the Troubles. <clears throat> this book um, was simply, um, it was, it wasn't, um, it was, a, it was more like a, a pamphlet, I guess. It, it was, what's the, um, a A5, I would say, in size, with a red cover. And um, it simply had a lot of, um, it's called Brutalities, and it was edited by this priest. And it had pictures on pictures of um, people who'd been basically beaten up or tortured or, or whatever by the security forces over the period of a year or two and my parents had a copy of this book and they took this book they they sought a meeting with their local parish priest in Purley who was who was a very English elderly guy called Canon Denning and they thought that he needed to hear about this and they sought an explanation from their parish priest as to what what's going on? What are the moral guide? What's the moral guidance here? What what do you think, uh, Father? And I do remember they, the evening that they left us for for an hour and went down to see him and seeking something. I don't quite know what in hindsight, but coming back very very quiet and very. Mm, I, I don't think disappointment covers it. I think it was something deeper than that. Um, in that you could say the ledge of their faith met the ledge of politics. And what they found was that Canon Denning dismissed it. You know, it said it, didn't, it couldn't possibly be happening. Um, they shouldn't worry about it. They shouldn't involve themselves. They shouldn't really paid any heed and I think to be honest um, that's the advice they took from that point on. But you're not your parents and whilst your parents may well have had um, uh, economic reasons as much as anything uh, to just simply take the priest's advice you're a 11 12 13 14 year old and so forth during those periods of the early 70s did you feel differently did you feel the need to, to kick against things? Yeah yeah, that 14-year-old, 15-year-old, definitely, yeah, you can't, I mean, the mind can't let some things rest, can it? <laughs> Let's put the age to one side. The issues keep burning away, don't they? You know, so I heard what my parents had to say, um, but the young Adrian couldn't, couldn't help but be at least baffled by some things and in other ways more indignant about others. Um, so another moment in the 70s was when I decided all on my own year that the, the visit of Bernadette Devlin to a conference organized by Marxism Today was something that I might be interested at the London School of Economics. Um, with Ken Livingston making um, quite a, I think he was chairing quite a lot of it. Um, 
and somehow or other, in the manner of, you know, slipping out to the disco without letting them know, um, I, I managed to slip out to this thing, um, which was, I think it was near the Aldwych. Um, anyway, as far as they were concerned, this was worse than, you know, um, um, getting on heroin or anything like that, because, um, well, a couple of things. Number one, the special branch would have been recording and, and taking photos of people around in and around. But number two, uh, you know, it's not like um, the stamp club. You can't join one day and then say, oh, perhaps I won't bother with that. You know, if one can't enlist in a cause and then forget about it the next month. So they were very concerned that I should not um, become a hothead um, about this um, and I remember the dressing down was at least as least as powerful as you know stumbling in drunk on a Sunday morning or anything like that so um, and yeah I, I, I bound up with my own adolescent struggle with my parents I think was the, this cause was tacked on so in order to annoy them even more this was earlier though, I think this is more like 14, 14 years old. I, um, I got a brand from the uh, fire in the back garden and in letters a foot high, I wrote uh, a Adrian Lunny IRA. And um, so this was from our, from our detached house garden, visible from all the other good people of Purley, you know, Oh, we've got one of these, have we? Um, and um, yeah, so that again, that was not a good move, really, as far as my parents were concerned. Uh, so that had to come down the same day. But did you do this in the on the grass or on the fence? Or no, this was burnt onto the shed side. Onto the shed side, okay. So yeah, pretty visible. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, they're doing it in Belfast. Show some, show some solidarity, you know um so um yeah so that so one gets impulsive i mean adolescence is about sprouting and pimples and being impulsive isn't it and i guess this is this is one of my 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 best pimples ever you ran off to northern ireland i did yeah again it's part of the suffering of being an adolescent is you can't one cannot fucking stand being with one parent for a single day more um and if they're not going to play ball well bye bye you know so, um, so my cousin who, um, who, who shipped out of Belfast a couple of years earlier, and he was two or three years older than me, had a boyfriend uh, who shall remain nameless, um, who worked for the British Transport Police, uh, who I persuaded to forge me a rail ticket um, from London to Liverpool return, which he did because uh, I always put in a good word for him on a Saturday night. And um, and uh, I got a, somehow or other, I bought my, my ticket for the ferry sleeping on the deck overnight. And I got my mother's brother to pick me up in his van at six in the morning and drive me... Uh, drive me west through Northern Ireland from Belfast to County Leitrim, where my mother's sister was living. And that's where I spent my running away weeks <laughs> before, I, before I ran back again. 
<laughs> to finish my A levels and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, so I would. That was one time. Uh, I was trying. Yeah, I was trying to think of some other time. Uh, uh, it's kind of, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that so that happened in. I think that was the summer of. Yeah, I think that was seventy six or seventy seven. Can't remember. Yeah, that summer, and when I and when I was in Leitrim, um, the actor David Soul was there at the same time. Just so we all know, uh, remember Starskin Hutch? He was the blonde one. So he was the big news in town at the time. Little village just outside um, the resort of Bundoran in Sligo. And so I learned how to do hay, and I, I so I arrived um, with with uh, an em kind of an emptyish suitcase and three LPs. Remember LPs? Yeah. So, so one of those LPs was Rory Gallagher live in Europe, and so I played that uh, more or less all day, every day for three weeks while I was mucking about doing hay. I, uh, there was a butcher in the village, and I helped him. His sons were a bit squeamish about helping him, or at least one of them was. So um, I got involved with that and had a lovely time. Do you remember Major Cigarettes, smoking Major Cigarettes? The Sweet Afton, all the cigarettes were different in, the, in Southern Ireland, of course. Uh, so, so that was fun. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it, was a little, it was a little rite of passage. It was a little walkabout, maybe something like that, um, and and I think and when I came back, I was changed. I think I'd put something behind me to rest or or whatever, you know. Um, you also had something to go to, didn't you? Which was essentially that you had this prospect of of Cambridge and scholarship and uh, or, or scholarly activity. Yes. Well, well, yeah. I, well, I had that to aim at. I mean. <laughs> I didn't have a place, and um, and I couldn't say everybody believed in me. Um, I mean, my parents did, but I would say that the teachers knew had got my number as a sort of raggedy-assed troublemaker, um, and <laughs> and yeah, perhaps not not quite fit for um, Oxbridge. But anyway, I got there. You know, fuck it, I got there. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and um, and on we go, you know. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, We All Come From Somewhere Else. Adrian Lunny's story isn't just about the political or the familial, it's also about his musical heritage. We started the conversation talking about his love of Irish folk, and it's a subject which carries a tale of its own. At the height of the troubles, you could say, I, my uncle Philip took me under his wing in terms of um, a bit of mentoring. Uh, and on one of our holidays in the burning province um, in Belfast, um, he presented me with a number of musical instruments, including a fiddle or violin, same thing. Uh, there was a saxophone. There was there was a trumpet. I it was it was a whole yard sale, you know. And um, to go with that was a copy, a mint copy, of a book called O'Neill's Thousand and One Jigs and Reels. Um, 
which is which back then anyway was a kind of was the starter manual was the bible um and i took that home and i i began experimenting with it <clears throat> i mean i had a day job at, as as uh, at the school uh to uh, to fulfill my music scholarship to lead the orchestra to take part in the classical world there and um so this folk thing was a bit on the side as was the blues guitar that i picked up in age 16 again the roy gallagher connection my uh, another uncle knew um the people the roy rory's people let's call them that um or the road crew and so we were close to that side of things as well so there was a lot of musical stuff going on different bits and pieces going on and um the payoff for, for it all doug came much later really um when my parents um god bless them god rest their souls um they both got ill my mum got alzheimer's and my, my dad had a stroke and had dementia um and uh, so this is maybe 15 years ago i'd have been in my mid 40s <clears throat> and I've resolved to brush up on Irish music and um, because I found that it was an instant healing, if you like, or an instant emotional entry point for, for my parents at this time in their lives. <clears throat> um, but I felt I, that I could do it once more with feeling, as it were, and the feeling I needed to get a bit of insight. I'd heard of um, some classes. Well, I'd heard of the Irish Centre and I discovered actually that there were two. There was one in Camden, and there was one in Hammersmith. And Hammersmith was the nearest to me on the district line where I was living in West London. So I went there and I'm glad I did because I met um, Brendan Mulcair, who um, I think he's still involved, although the place at Black's Road is no longer exists. I think it's all in Camden now. But anyway, he uh, he was running a number of classes for fiddle, tin whistle, the box, the accordion, and uh, I turned up. Uh, I, I think I'd I'd be the oldest member in the class probably. There were there were fiddle, there were people, men, boys, women, children, you know, every every color, every kind of you know nation under the sun. Well, not quite, but it was very diverse. It was a very diverse thing. His best student actually was a Chinese girl. I think she was, she, she wasn't a girl actually. She was more in her mid twenties, but she was, uh, she was such a fan and, and a great player. Anyway, I learned the mute. I learned um, a lot out from him from the end. And actually uh, another diversion, his father, was um, I think he was the founder, if not one of the leading members of a very famous Cayley band um, from County Clare called the Kilfenora Cayley Band. When you get into music of any kind, you find that, okay, so, you know, in jazz or blues, there are people who've got chops, as they say, chops being a technical skill. So, or, or have been to the Guildhall and learnt it all from books and, and other things. And they can play it backwards, upside down, inside out and everything with a lot of technical skill. However, the musicality uh, and the point of the tune may never communicate itself with such an approach. Um, and Brendan was the opposite to someone who had chops. He's an incredibly musical, um, incredibly musical approach to, to, to tunes. And you could, you could kind of see 
you could see through the tune really the way why it was the way it was most most of the repertoire i would say even the titles napoleon's retreat you know things like that most of it is from the 18th and the 19th century it's from airs and melodies from that time and the rest is uh the rest is invention and some improvisation to turn it into dance music uh to turn those those melodies and tunes into dance music um and I could, I could yeah brendan revealed all that to me without without saying a word about it he he was he was a very uh <sighs> He was, a, he was, the, the title for him would be Music Master, as it is in Ireland. Maybe not so now with the way things are, but 50 years ago, Music Master would be the title. And <clears throat> he would, in the, in the, in the manner of a, what I would imagine a karate master would be like, you know, he'd, he'd give you a bit, <laughs> he'd give you a little bit. And then when you got that under your belt, he'd give you another little bit. He wouldn't be explaining it. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be theorizing it. He would be playing something and then you would play something. And then you'd either play that right <coughs> or not so good. So you do it again and again. And then and then you get to the next bit and the next bit. So you'd it it was it was that tedious old, I'll demonstrate it for you, you copy me. It was kind of parrot fashion, but it but it was his way, you know, and, and it was good. And um, and I, I ended up taking my parents in their 80s up to the um, Irish Centre for, for some concerts and um, very, very chaotic events. These concerts, <laughs> these Irish Centre Cayleys, um, because everybody has to have a go. And, it, you know, we could be talking about four in the morning before everybody's had a go. Um, uh, but uh, it was a great gift, really. It was a good, it was a gift to, to uh, I don't know how, um, I've been rambling and rambling, but it, it was a gift to be able to, to plant that musical, that musicality back in my parents' lives at a time when they really needed it, I think. Uh, because it's, it's sadly a feature of dementia and Alzheimer's that person seems to retreat to an earlier stage, uh, may, you know, Tiernanogue, you know, the land of the young, they, they go back to perhaps their twenties, they go back to that time and it's still fresh. So, so remembering these tunes of the dance halls and all the rest of it, um, uh, that was the payoff for me. That was the kind of, um, that was the way in which I think my fiddle playing got used eventually, you know. I'm going to move across to uh, uh, bring us much more up to date now. When I when I met you, you uh, this was uh, uh, when we were both doing a, a screenwriting course and so forth. And prior to that, you'd, um, you'd you'd decided to become a journalist. Do you find that you bounce from thing to thing? <laughs> Are you finding that today? Um, <laughs> no, um, I don't have. I do. Yeah, actually, I do. Yeah, I, I prefer not to have a set plan, or I, I prefer not to get too bogged down in what I think should be happening um, and, and mix it up a bit with, um, with, um, with the day, you know, and with opportunities and what comes, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, so, uh, so I, I can bounce. I think my wife would probably tell you I do bounce around. 
but we can't involve her. I share a similar characteristic, and I'm wondering off the top of my head whether or not this is a vaguely Irish diaspora quality that um, that because there's a, a, a level of uncertainty to the background to, to our backgrounds, and there's a certain then you kind of embrace the uncertainty of the future. You may well be right. Yes, you may well. I mean, some folks. Uh, uh, I don't know. What What do we think? What do we? The 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 best of us, as it's as it were, the Wogans and the Graham Nortons. Do they bounce around? Do they? I always felt that Wogan had something of that. Some there is there is an improvisational nature to something, Doug. I'm not sure why or where, but there's a kind of, oh, well, you could call it the crack, couldn't you? There's a willingness to step out into the, step off the pavement <laughs> um, into something else, you know, and then come back, you know, mate, hopefully. Um, but um, I would, yeah, imp improvisation, I would say. One final question, and it's a question that I ask pretty much every guest, which is, what does me being a member of the diaspora mean to you? Well, I love it, I think. And I, uh, it's really weird that I, I've worked in the plastics industry a lot. <laughs> I, I, I have a client in West Cork, and he's got a fierce West Cork wit about him. Uh, and yeah, I introduced myself as a plastic paddy to him. I, I, I like that I can speak two languages, as it were. And work, working with this guy, actually, is in a business capacity over the last 10, 12 years, that's been, that's been very uh, good for me. Um, uh, it's another dimension of Ireland. The West Cork is a place unto itself. Um, but, but I love... Um, how could I put it? Uh, I love both sides, really. I love the, I love having had the access to the best of the English tradition, I would say, with a few bumps, speed bumps in the way, but coming to appreciate the civilized virtues of um, a middle-class education and uh, the fairness values and uh, intellectual achievements, blah, 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 let's say, of the English side. And I also love the vernacular of the Irish and being able to treat life uh, in a more improvised manner, let's say, maybe a more creative manner. Uh, and to be able to combine the, to combine both really, without necessarily anybody knowing, anybody else knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a kind of secretive manner i don't know i don't know that's another story maybe um so i'm grateful i'm grateful for both actually now you know uh even though it's a little weird it was a little weird here and there you know um hearing your vowels on the wrong side of a, a bar or whatever but um yeah um no it's it's yeah no complaints You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Adrian Lunny. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Mo O'Connell and Mary Tyler. Music by Jack Devaney. You can find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com or email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. 
or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.